Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Hey there, Food Junkies listeners. Did you know we were recently ranked in the top 10 for food addiction podcasts? Help us get to 100,000 downloads by January 1st, 2022 as a big thank you to Dr. Vera Tarman for making this all possible. So while you're listening to this episode, be sure to like, subscribe, and share with anyone you think may find it helpful. In today's episode, Vera and I sit down with Dr. Tim Noakes. Dr. Noakes shares his personal and professional journey. He talks about the Banting Diet changing one person, one meal at a time, and how we really need to focus on changing doctors. He talks briefly about his legal battle, how research can become biased and manipulated, his thoughts on the evidence for food addiction as a legitimate diagnosis. He tells us how we ourselves can help you find more accurate information. He talks about nutritional science and epidemiological studies and why that needs to change. He even talks about volume addiction and gives us a really interesting insight into his life in his answer to our signature question. Welcome, Dr. Noakes. Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. I am your co-host today, along with Molly Painshop. Today, we talk with the notorious Dr. Tim Noakes. Dr. Noakes is a former health scientist at the Division of Exercise Science and Sports Medicine at the University of Cape Town in South Africa. Although he is an MD, his focus has mainly been in the study of sports science and the low-carb diet. He has written over 370 scientific articles, as well as co-written several books, notably The Real Meal Revolution and his most recent book, The Eat Life Revolution. Noakes is known for having presented some landmark contentious theories, and the one we're the most interested in today is his Banting Noakes low-carb, high-fat diet. This landmark diet, published in 2014, caused him great consternation with the health profession's Council of South Africa, whereby after a hearing, they declared him guilty of misconduct simply by offering a low-carb, high-fat diet. His experience is an excellent example of the vehement backlash that can occur when challenging conventional medical beliefs like the low-fat, high-carb diet for the treatment of obesity and diabetes, even when presenting solid scientific proof. As Noakes tweeted once, Interesting analogies to my case, and that brought against Galileo by the Inquisition. Hello, Dr. Noakes. Hi, Vera. Thank you very much for that stunning introduction. Very much appreciated. Okay, so we want to get right to the heart of this, starting, first of all, with you've talked about this at length, I'm sure, in many interviews, but just to give us a thumbnail, your introduction in the beginning with how you started in the traditional low-fat, high-carb There you are, a clinician, a scientist, but something changed your mind so that you were willing to take on establishment. What was your aha moment and how did that happen? Well, let's go back. I went, got into medicine because Chris Barnard in South Africa performed the first human heart transplant. And that inspired me to go into cardiac research. 
And this was in the 1970s. And of course, that was right at the start of this dietary change when we were told we must eat lots of cereals and grains. So I was working with professors of cardiology who were totally committed to this idea. And it would have been impossible for me to believe anything otherwise, because here they're my heroes, they're my guardians, they're helping me learn to be a scientist. And the last thing I can possibly think is that they're wrong. (laughs) So, of course, I didn't. For 33 years, I didn't think they were wrong. Then what happened one morning, I read a book called Waterlog, which is a pretty contentious book because I took on an entire industry and proved that they were wrong and giving out the wrong information. Exactly. You already started this process. Yeah. (laughs) That's right. And the night that I sent it off, I woke up the next morning and my brain said to me, you must get up and you must go and run and you must run every day for the rest of your life because I hadn't been running enough. And so I had a terrible run. I came back and... On my email, incoming email was an advert for a book called The New Atkins for the New You. And it said, lose six pounds in six weeks without hunger. And I was so angry when I read it because I knew the scientists. I knew that they were brilliant scientists. And I said, how could they sell out to Dr. Atkins? So I went and bought the book and I started reading through it. And then within two hours, I said, oh, my gosh, I got it wrong for 33 years. And I decided that's it. I'm going to try this because I was feeling terrible. I was overweight and I had type 2 diabetes at that time. I didn't realize it, but I caused myself to get type 2 diabetes with the diet. And so I went on the low carb diet and the result was absolutely spectacular. Within two days, I knew that this was this was for life. And so I, I benefited hugely from it and I have reversed my type 2 diabetes as a consequence of following the diet. And I've just become obviously more knowledgeable about it and realized how the information had been suppressed. It's still suppressed that medical students are not taught this material. And there are obviously very good reasons for why that is so, but we won't get into that at this stage. So that was the reason I was in a bad space. I was insulin resistant. I was type 2 diabetic. I was eating completely the wrong diet. As soon as I cut the sugar, the carbs, the ultra processed foods, and focused on meat and fish and dairy and chicken and nuts and a bit of vegetables, my health improved dramatically. And and I'm now 72 and I shouldn't be alive. I shouldn't be alive because my dad, when he his diagnosis of type 2 diabetes, he was dead within 10 years. I've gone more than 10 years. So I'm cheating the system. So that's what the diet's done. So the diet is, I'm assuming, the Banting Noakes diet. So do you want to give us a little bit of info about that? So what happened when I started promoting the low-carb diet, along came some other guys who had just run the length of the wall of China. And when they were in China, they ran out of food. And the Mongolese said, all you're going to survive on is eating pork fat. That's You'll only finish this thing if you eat pork fat. So they decided to eat pork fat, and they finished the run. And they said, we wouldn't have done it without pork fat. And they said, you know, maybe this high-fat diet's really good for athletes. So let's, why don't we write a book about it? So I just wrote the science and they'd put all together all the diets. And the one brilliant part of the book is the green list, which is the foods that you can eat. And then there are a red list, which you can't eat, and yellow list, which is kind of in between. And that was the brilliance of Sally Ann Creed, who was the nutritionist who helped us. She put that diet, that together. So it's a very simple diet that is, that's natural foods, but the key is that it's meat, fish, dairy, chicken, 
and nuts and some vegetables. And you can have as many or as little vegetables as you choose. So that that's what it is. But it, most of all, it's what it isn't, as you know. It's not ultra-processed foods and it's not sugar and it's not seed oils. And it's definitely not sugar, as I've mentioned, or high fructose corn syrup. And it's not sweet drinks, cola drinks and those things. And so in a sense, it's a lot of it's just what you avoid. And that my coach has decided to go carnival recently. And he said, the beauty of the carnival diet, it's so simple. There's, no, <laughs> there's such a small choice, but it's so delicious. And so that's that I try to simplify it by just saying stick to those those foods, the five or six food groups that I mentioned. Yeah. So interestingly enough, we have had Karen Thompson and John O'Proudfoot already interview for our podcast, which you may or may not know, titled Food Junkies. We are here about food addiction, sugar addiction, like whatever label we want to put on it. And so we really wanted to know what your thoughts were on sugar or food addiction. Like, do you believe it's a real thing? You know, and why do you think there's so much resistance in the nutrition and medical space in accepting the concept of this could be a real diagnosis. It is absolutely a real diagnosis. And anyone who says it isn't, it's just, they're being paid to say that. That, that you know, That's my argument. You know, the industry falsifies the information, gives us this false information all the time. And I knew it because as soon as I started talking about it, the people who attacked me, whenever I would say sugar addiction, they'd say it doesn't exist. And these are people who are purely on social media to disrupt the information and to spread the false information. So uh, Karen Thompson would have told you her position. I mean, I was severely addicted to sugar. It took me 14 months to get off all sugar. And even today, well, fortunately now I spit out sugar. If I was to ever be exposed to it, I just, I can't bear the taste. But for a time, I could easily have gone back. But now it's 10 years later, now I couldn't. So I think that it's not just the sugar, it's also bread. A lot of people tell me they have a bread addiction. And I think those are those are two. And I suspect that I probably had a bread addiction. My wife used to say, but I would come home after a day of work and I'd immediately start eating bread. And she said, but I'm cooking this fabulous meal for you and you want to eat all this bread. And so I think, so no, my view is, yes, it is absolutely an addiction. And there's increasing evidence that ultra processed foods are, are addictive as well. And let's just remember that the tobacco industry said that nicotine is not addictive and smoking is not harmful. And they got away with it because they control the message. And that's what's happened. The food industry controls the messaging. And there are many people who are very happy to take their money and to say that the food is not addictive or the sugar is not addictive. So I, I have absolutely no faith in those people. In fact, I quite despise them for being so dishonest. So knowing how things have gone in South Africa with I mean, you guys had the the inpatient treatment center, you know, how much you had a hand in that. I'm not sure Karin really spoke yeah. to, you know, your influence in that. And then the book. So why do you think the Real Meal Revolution has been so successful in South Africa and is starting now to be more popular all over the world? Like, what are you guys doing that the rest of us have overlooked? Because that really seems to probably have curbed some of that addiction within your country. So what, yeah. what are you guys doing right that we need to to start doing? And, you I know, think we, that we, the we, difference yeah. is that South Africa is a, is a very small country. And so it's easy for a message to go right out across the country. Whereas in the United States, it's not the same. I mean, each state is different. And that's so each state has its own peculiarities and its own people who people listen to. In South Africa, it was very easy to get a message out right across the country. 
And it was the people who did it because they found that they were cured of their diseases. And that's what took it out. We didn't advertise it. Jono and will tell you, we did no advertising. It was word of mouth from people who had tried the diet and they found that they could control their weight for the very first time, as I discovered, as everyone who discovers in this, this diet, that as soon as you control hunger, then you can control your weight. But without controlling hunger, you'll never control your weight. And of course, the hunger in part is the sugar addiction and all the addictive behaviors. Yeah. So we've heard you mention, or I've heard you mention in interviews before about that, the diseases, whether it be the diabetes or obesity or something along those lines and, and relating it to the sugar addiction. So will you speak more to that? What steps do we need to take? As you mentioned, I'm in the US, Vera's in Canada, you know, and we have listeners internationally. Like, what steps do we, the little people, need to take to do what the people of South Africa have done? Yeah, that's a really difficult question. Because the messaging got out so well, and the book was really, really good, and it gave this message of hope. And it was so simple just follow these rules and you get these results. And this was from people who had tried everything and it hadn't worked. So they realized that this was the truth. We always said that we're trying to change one person one meal at a time. And that, that's, in a sense, how it happened. I suspect that, you know, it had something to do with, obviously, I'm quite well known in South Africa, and it doesn't happen in the United States, where a person who's simply been a professor in a medical school can become well known in the country. I think in the United States, it's a little more difficult. You, you have to be a global expert to be nationally recognized. In this country, I'm not a global expert, but... But I was nationally recognized, and so that definitely helped. It also, at the time, it was interesting because I had a very positive profile in the media for 30 years because I was promoting sports science and health and so on, and, and nothing could go wrong. It was all perfect. Ironically, ironically, as soon as I did this book, that all changed. And since then, I've had predominantly negative press exposure, which is really interesting. So even though it was negative, it didn't stop people following the advice, which is paradoxical. You, so you what, what can you do? I think you just have to you just have to keep changing one person at a time. What we're doing through the Noakes Foundation is trying to change doctors because we feel with each doctor that we change, you, you're going to change thousands of people. And so that we've definitely started to focus, target the doctors. But otherwise, it's, it's one person, one meal at a time to restate that. It's a long, slow process. And we're fighting against a massive industry that has got all the resources they need to prevent the message getting out. I think, you know, in case people are not aware of this, we, I do need to bring in, because you said you had a positive, glowing reputation, and then you lost that. And part of that was because of this charge against you, where you were actually accused of, of misconduct. And despite that, people still followed you. But I mean, what you just said there, we have to get the doctors. Well, it was the doctors who bucked against you and said that you were declaring misconduct. Can you just say a little bit about that? Because it's very instructive for us to hear somebody who carried the message, same message message that we're carrying and you had to face like a, an onslaught that's just incredible so just a little a few words about that experience yeah i apologize the internet connection went down in the middle of what you were saying ah. so perhaps you could just repeat the second half of what you said uh, just although you're known for this the health council and the uh, declaration that you were misconduct give us a little bit of that story and how you came out of that because it's a, it's a, it's a useful lesson for us yeah so one of my great friends lewis Pugh, he's the guy i helped to swim at the north pole and at, in the far south in the antarctic 
in ice cold water and just in his swimming costume. And he's very knowledgeable about how you promote ideas. He said, Tim, you need to get onto Twitter, which I did. And I soon discovered that Twitter is actually very helpful because you learn so much. And most of what I have written in the last 10 years, much of the information, or eight years, I should say, much of the key information has come from stuff I've picked up on Twitter because I follow the people who are the experts. And if you really want to stay with current with information, you just need to follow the experts on Twitter. So I went on Twitter and soon a lot of people started following me. And then I was asked questions. And I, I must admit, I wasn't, I was a little naive. And so one lady asked a wee question that this is key. She said she wanted advice for mothers and babies. And as soon as you ask a wee question, what you're doing is you're giving information, not medical advice. And I gave her medical information, not advice. And I said that she should raise her child on the low-carb, high-fat diet. And she was breastfeeding and obviously keep breastfeeding and so on. And within 12 hours, I've been reported to the Health Professions Council. And I think the lady who reported me, she'd actually been targeting me and had been watching everything I did. And in fact, a week before, I'd given a talk in Johannesburg where she lives, and she and six of her colleagues had come and they'd recorded everything I'd said. Now, why would they record everything I said? And it was really interesting because one of the last questions that was asked at that meeting was something about breastfeeding. And I've never spoken about breastfeeding ever. So anyway, so I responded. And it turns out what I said was absolutely what the South African Dietary Guidelines are. And in fact, the World Health Organization says exactly the same. You must raise your children on those foods, meat, fish, dairy, at least once a day or as often as possible. And those are the South African guidelines. So what I was saying was absolutely appropriate. What the Health Profession Council wanted to achieve was to stop anyone having freedom of speech on Twitter. That was the key. Because if they could catch me for giving medical information, not advice, medical information, then no South African doctor for henceforth could ever give out any information in a public lecture, even write about it and risk his whole career. So that's what the focus was. Of course, behind it was the International Sugar Organization and the organization was the International Life Sciences Institute who had it in for me because I had caused such trouble with my book, Waterlogged, and I'd exposed Pepsi-Cola and the product Gatorade and their science, their fake science that they'd used to promote this product. So they were right behind it as well. And we didn't know that because most of the expert witnesses from South Africa were former members of ILSI, were presidents of South African branch of ILSI. So ILSI was all over this case. And you can understand why. Again, it's the processed food industry. They didn't want me saying eat real foods and therefore particularly not cereals because South Africans are raised on cereals from birth. The weaning food is cereals. And I was saying it shouldn't be that. And uh -huh. that was not going to be acceptable to those industries. So that's how it happened. I decided to fight it because my university had been trying to destroy my career ever since I published that book. And the key was in that book, The Real Meal Revolution, I said that insulin resistance is a driver of all chronic disease. And therefore, it's a dietary disease, high diabetes, hypertension, cancer, dementia. They're all nutritional diseases. And you can't treat them with medications. You have to treat them with a diet. And that's totally unacceptable to the medical paradigm 
which is the opposite. The medical paradigm at present is I'll make the diagnosis and here's the pill. That's what we teach medical students. We don't teach students now to question why the patient came to see you today with this condition. And that's what I was taught as a medical student 50 years or 40 odd years ago. You've got to find out what's the cause of the condition in the patient. And that's gone out now because we don't need it because he has a pill. There's a pill for every disease. So you don't have to know what caused it. So I had a choice. I could have gone for a lesser charge. They offered me a lesser charge. They said, we'll let you off if you just say you apologize and delete the tweet. I said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'll fight you. And so I fortunately had the best legal team in the country. I had two of the really best lawyers. They go their time to me for free, which would have cost millions of dollars, millions of dollars. That's what they did for me. And that was astonishing. And with those two on board, we were never going to lose. And what they said was, just give the evidence. So we gave 7,000 pages of evidence. And the prosecution gave 10 pages of scientific evidence. One single paper that we think is fraudulent. It is a South African paper. And Zoe Harcom, who is one of my expert witnesses, she and I dissected the paper and found that it had 14 material errors, which significantly changed the outcomes. And that was a single paper. So what I then realized is these people, they don't believe facts matter. They're just going to steamroller you to quit so that you're going to give up and they're going to carry on. But once they get up against the facts, then they're in trouble because the facts support us. And that was what we showed. So in the end, it took four years, 28 days in court. I was cross-examined for three days. I gave evidence for nine, six days, cross-examined for three days under oath. And they couldn't find anything wrong with what I said. And in the end, I won 13 decisions to nil. (laughs) So it was a very convincing victory. That's amazing. So what I find really interesting, I didn't know this, is that your initial contentious discussion with your book waterlogged which i knew you were bucking against the system because you were just saying a sort of widely held belief that we need to drink a lot or hydrate when we're doing marathon or extreme sport and there you are saying not so and i didn't realize that the pepsi was behind that negation absolutely yeah absolutely and you see i'll just give you an example so i was very high well i was quite well recognized in the american college of sports medicine i was a whatever it is, a fellow or something, and I'd won one or two awards. But then all of a sudden, things got vicious, and I started to be attacked by colleagues in the American College of Sports Medicine, who all of whom were linked to Gatorade and Pepsi-Cola because they were being funded by them. And then I realized how industry works. Industry finds the scientists that as long as they give them money to fund their research, I'm not suggesting for one second that the people benefited financially into their bank accounts. They benefit because they fund their research. And, and I know because I was one of them. I was accepting money from the sugar industry and from the food industry to do these studies. And the irony was I used that money to disprove it because that the waterlogged book is based on all the money that we had used from the industry to disprove them. So that said, I kind of cleared my name in the end <laughs> of conflicts of interest. But that was, and then I realized how these industries work. They target the people They don't go, well, they do go to Harvard, I'm sorry, but (laughs) they don't generally go to Harvard. They go to the slightly less good universities where there's less money and the people will grab the low-hanging fruit, so to speak, and they will do research and then they tend to be 
manipulatable because if they do say what they what the real truth is, they'll lose their funding. And so they do research that always proves what they want to prove, and they never challenge the, yeah. the ideas. So just to sum up, so the waterlog, am I fair to say that really what you were saying is we don't need all these products, we just need simple, real water, and not yes. that much <laughs> of it, right? And similarly with the diet, we just need real food and not that much of it. Yeah, exactly. It's very simple. It, and all the science, it's just propaganda that is advertising the product. That's all it is. And you've continued with your rallying force because you just published this year, or a comment anyway, in the Journal of Open Heart about the Women's Health Initiative, which is a huge study that's been going on for years and that has been started, what, in the 70s, something like that. Just the fact that you're still following the scientific era, bucking against the system. Can you just give a little bit of the latest information that you have, which bucks against the Women's Health Initiative? Yeah. Well, when the university wanted to publicly humiliate me, what they did was they organized a debate, which was before the faculty, and the faculty was definitely strengthened by people who didn't agree with me. And the person who was overseeing the lecture was also biased, heavily biased against me. So, And then they flew in this guy, Dr. Professor Jacques Rousseau, who was a South African, who I'd actually worked with. He then went to America and remarkably was put in charge of the Women's Health Initiative, which is a $700 million study. And so they then called him out to come and attack me and to prove that Noakes was completely wrong and pseudoscience and all that. The goal was to prove that I was a quack. So fortunately, a week before he came out, the diet doctor, Andreas Ienfeld, also came to Cape Town. And I told Andreas that I would be debating Jacques and he said, well, have you read that paper, their first paper, the 2006 paper, which was the first report of the Women's Health Initiative Randomized Controlled Dietary Intervention Study? And I said, no, I haven't really read it carefully. So I said, well, just go to the page seven. So we, he showed me on his computer. He paged through it. And there on the seventh page was a tiny little bit which said the hazard ratio for women with heart disease at the start of the trial during the trial was the hazard ratio was 1.26 if they followed the healthy diet. In other words, their risk of heart attack went up 26% in the group who had heart disease and who were put on the so-called heart-healthy diet. And they had hidden that completely. And in the figures that also, well, I won't say they manipulated the figure, but the figure is wrong and it's never been corrected. So I presented that in the talk and it's really remarkable because the person who was in charge of the debate tried to stop me before I got to it. He actively, and you can watch if you see my de- the story, at 28 minutes, he suddenly says, Dr. Noakes, you're going to have to stop. You've run out of time. He knew that the fifth issue I was raising was this. So he was forewarned. Anyway, I managed to get it out, and I wrote it up for the South African Medical Journal. And the Women's Health Initiative never addressed what I said. They just gave some other explanation about that was a printer's error doesn't matter if it's a printer's error. You correct it. You write a letter to the journal and you say, this is wrong. We've got to correct it. They, never, they still haven't done that. So, so that was the link. And then by chance, about nine months ago, I looked up and I said, well, what's happened to the Women's Health Initiative recently? And, and I came across two recent papers, one published in 2017 and one published in 2019. And I looked at the publication in the 2017 and I noticed remarkably that this risk had gone from 26% to 60%. So 
So now, if you had heart disease at the start of the trial and you ate the healthy, low-fat diet, which Professor Rousseau has been promoting for the last 40 years, your risk of additional heart problems increased 60%. Now, that is the major finding of the study, but it's not reported. And I wondered why it wasn't reported. So I went and looked, and I said that they came up with two false arguments about why the data couldn't be trusted. And I proved that they were completely wrong. What they said is, is a manipulation. It's not true. So eventually I wrote it up and managed to get it published in Open Heart, which is the British Medical Journal, so it's quite well read. And there's not been a single word of criticism of what I wrote, not a single comment. So my conclusion from that is that if you have insulin resistance, so you have at risk of heart disease or you have heart disease, and you eat the low-fat diet, then you're going to develop problems. And that's logical. We know that. It's interesting. In the debates, I was asked, or I, Professor Rousseau said, oh, your theory that insulin resistance is important is ridiculous because only 6% of Americans have insulin resistance. So the NIH and he have no clue what insulin resistance is, and he's never had any idea what insulin resistance is. So he completely misses how important it is. And that's why they missed it. But the key point is that it is unethical. It's now unethical to prescribe low-fat diet for people with established heart disease or at risk of developing it because they have insulin resistance. That's the truth. Yeah, that's the truth. And, you know, you're declaring it is unethical, but the advice continues. I mean, we have a doctor in uh, Canada who had a similar story to yours, Dr. Evelyn Roy. I don't know if you've heard of her. She's part of a new group of low-carb doctors, which is growing actually in Canada. And she opened up a clinic for obesity. And, you know, doctors are still hearing it's all about the sugar. It's the blood sugar. They're not looking at the insulin piece. And so she was saying, no, it's the insulin piece. And a dietitian called our college and made a complaint so that Evelyn had to close her clinic. Like she, it's closed now. And she's quite upset about that. And that's that we're talking 2021. So it continues. I mean, the, the battle continues. Yeah. And that's because the profession and the professional bodies are controlled by the pharmaceutical industries. And unfortunately, the people who get onto those boards are have no interest in science. They have only an interest in promoting their own positions and advancing their own careers. And that's what you're dealing with. You know, I, there were eight people who decided to charge me. They never asked me for my opinion. They then went out actively to find evidence that I should be charged, which is completely against the South African Constitution. Yet they broke it. And the professor in charge was a professor of ethics at one of our major universities. And she didn't understand that what she did was utterly, completely unethical. Now, that's the problem. There is no leadership. That's the issue at the moment. There's no leadership. It's all controlled by industry. So just to draw the analogy between the uh, whole combat that you faced around the importance of diet for insulin resistance, you know, we're working in the food addiction world and we're facing a very similar battle with getting our diagnosis of food addiction acknowledged. Molly, you're on the uh, board. Do you want to talk a little bit about the struggle about that and just what some of the similarities are? Yeah, absolutely. So we have a third co-host, Clarissa Kennedy, and she and I sit on the board for the Food Addiction Institute. And we were part of the committee that back earlier this year, we submitted a proposal to the World Health Organization about food addiction and trying to get it into the newest ICD version whenever that materializes. And so we were really wondering, what do you think, you know, we've heard nothing, right? It's been sitting in committee for months at this point. And I'm sure that's 
par for course, but we haven't advertised it a whole lot because we don't want to attract these naysayers to it, right? We haven't put it out. We haven't put out big social media calls for support or anything like that. But what we were wondering is based on your experience and what you know, because of your research and what you've been actively working on recently, like, what do you think needs to happen for us to be successful? You know, do, will we see this in our lifetime? And if so, what research is needed? What actions do we need to take from an institution or, you know, like more of a political point of Mm. view? Yeah, you're probably asking the wrong person because I've, all I've ever done is just present the evidence. That's been my story. And I think that's the, if there's one story that from my experience, it's go for the facts and stick with the facts and do the research. And, and you've already mentioned that. I think there's more than enough evidence for food addiction. The evidence is there. And maybe you need a legal case because surprisingly, these people never thought that when they try to take me out, that actually it would rebound on them in a terrible way. They completely lost credibility. And I think the Dietetics Association of South Africa, I don't know if it still exists, but I think it took a huge bashing as a result of my trial. And of course, COVID hasn't helped, but I suspect that it's really struggling. So, you know, in a sense, it's almost like you need to have a case against someone, against one of you for promoting this theory about food addiction. And then you know you'll win if you get a reasonably I mean, the other problem is whether the legal system is completely corrupt in the United States and Canada, which it may well be. And Mm -hmm. I was just very fortunate that I had two absolutely honest people on the committee. Well, you know, what's really encouraging about our talk so far is that you were pretty explicit about stating that you believe in food addiction and that I think you even self-identified yourself as certainly sugar addiction. And what's happening with us in our world, obviously we believe in and we're promoting it, is that there isn't something that, I mean, we're promoting a sugar-free diet and it's not like somebody's going to raise a case against us. They're just going to ignore us. They're going to dismiss us. They're going to walk around it somehow. So there's not really... It's almost like an intangible, under-the-radar dismissal. Yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't miss, I missed a bit of that in the middle. Maybe just what was the key point? The key point was the difference between your, somebody said your diet was harmful, presumably yeah. to pregnant mom, and rather than them saying that we're presenting a harmful diet of no sugar, they're just ignoring yeah. it. They're yeah. making fun of it. They're laughing at us. Yeah, I understand that. That makes it a lot more difficult. The only action would be if a dietitian were who was prescribing a treatment for food addiction and they were again charged with doing something wrong. Yeah, that would be the only way to do it. But uh, you make a very strong point. And they will ignore it because it's it's the real elephant in the room. You know, when we talk about what's the cause of obesity, food addiction, full stop, ultra processed food and food addiction. That's what's the cause of obesity. But they can't absolutely can't acknowledge that because that takes out the whole ultra-processed food industry. And so, or it indicts the ultra-processed food industry and they can't allow that to happen. So that's why you will be ignored. Yeah, it's been particularly frustrating because as you can imagine, there aren't many dietitians or people in that realm, dietitians or nutritionists who believe that food addiction is a real thing. So we have a handful of folks who do. And then even then they're very good at staying in the gray so that they don't 
fully upset the eating disorder world, right? Like those dietitians who are moderators, everything in moderation, right? All of their continuing yeah. education is paid for by Pepsi, Coca-Cola, all of those guys. So yeah, so I guess it sounds like we just continue to soldier on. We continue to spread the message as much as we can and and maybe try to find our own Professor Noakes to, <laughs> to, to champion us. I don't know. I mean, it's it's been particularly frustrating because it's the advice or the medical advice, so to speak, the nutritional advice that they're getting from these, it's harmful. It is yeah. absolutely harmful to our clients. And so I don't even, I mean, maybe we need to sue somebody. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if it works like that, but it seems like something has to shift. The irony is, I mean, you have on your side, Robert Lustig, who's one of the best known scientists in the entire field. And he's who's, you know, he's genius status and he's getting close to genius status in my view. And so if he can't make the impact, that tells you how much resistance he's up against. We actually had a podcast with him a few weeks ago or months ago, and he said, we're in year nine of a 30-year process. He said, he's still got 21 years to go. And I think that someone who's been in the field for as long as he has, he's probably about right. And so I think that that's also, it's encouraging for all of us that it's not, you know, things are not going to change tomorrow, but we are winning. We will eventually win. And we may not see it, but the next generation will see it. Yeah, Yeah, I hang on to his sage words of like, we just have to wait for that generation to die, essentially, right? That They they will pass on and new forward thinkers will come along. But thinking about all of that and, and thinking about, you know, what you and Vera were just talking about as far as the Women's Health Initiative issue, you know, we have listeners who are professionals, we have listeners who are clients, and you doing this, you know, like it was a paper that you read and missed and Andreas had to like point it out and then you started researching more. So knowing your level of expertise in that and missing that and then having this debate, how can our listeners know where to find information that isn't false? Like how can we help them? How can we help steer them toward accurate information when it comes to the foods that they are putting in their mouths? Well, you have to understand nutritional epidemiology is the worst science in the world. It's probably the most pseudoscientific in the world. So when you're reading about nutritional science, you've just got to realize most of it is complete nonsense. And epidemiological studies are absolutely hopeless. They don't tell you very much. Can you explain why you think that's news to me and I want to know why? Yeah. Nutritional science. Why epidemiological studies are hopeless. No, no. Nutritional science is hopeless. Why? Elaborate, please, on why nutritional science is hopeless. Like, what's wrong with it compared to other science? John Ioannidis, who's one of my great heroes, the most cited scientist in the world. He's from Stanford, and he's written a whole series of articles on why nutrition science needs to be jacked up. And they took, for example, he looked at cancer, and if he took 50 foodstuffs and looked at them and their links to cancer, and you could find that they either prevented or they caused. There was everything in between. So the problem is the epidemiological studies, particularly those coming out of Harvard, look at a population and after they have been eating these foods for a period of time, and then they say that if you eat grains, you're healthier than if you eat meats. The only problem is that that is not a randomized controlled trial, and there are all these variables that are associated. That's point one. Point two, it's called p-hacking. They have got all this information, and they look for relationships which are significant. So that if you eat bananas for breakfast, it might be more important than if you eat bananas at night. So bananas at night might protect you, whereas bananas in the breakfast might cause harm. And that is called p-hacking. 
And it's because it's not based on a hypothesis. You can't do epidemiological studies and then come up with an hypothesis. What you do is you look at the evidence, you find where there's a significant relationship, and then you say that's causal, and you can't do that. And that's where Dr. Willett from Harvard has misled the world, because he has said that we have shown that people eating grains are healthier. Therefore, it's the grains that cause that. What he's forgotten is that people who are eating grains in the last 30 years, like me, I thought I was incredibly healthy. So I chose to eat grains rather than to eat meat. But it didn't help me. I got type 2 diabetes and I was a marathon runner. But amongst the group, like myself, who are healthy-minded, there will be some who will do extremely well. It's not because they ate grains. It's because they were healthy, active. They choose to do what they were told to do, which was healthy for them. You remove the causative agent and you see what happens. And again, epidemiology finds reasons. People who eat grains may be healthier, but that is a reason. You've got to find out what it is. It's not the cause. Okay, the so- reason is likely that they are healthy and they don't smoke and they do lots of active activity. They run marathons, et cetera, et cetera. They married and do all sorts of other things. Okay, and so they, given that, you know, following Molly's question, how do we weed through all of this? Well, I think you reject 99% of, the, <laughs> of what you see in science because most of science is funded by industry to produce a, an outcome. And that, that's the reality. You have to find out who's the scientist, who's funding them, where are the conflicts of interest. I mean, the most obvious is, let's, this is an obvious one, the statin drugs, which are supposedly lower cholesterol and prevent heart disease. Now it appears that they probably cause heart disease. But when you see the people who are writing those articles and you see the list of pharmaceutical companies that they represent, that's all you need to know. And it's the same in the pharmaceutical, in this or in nutrition industry. You just got to look who's funding who, Pepsi-Cola, Coca-Cola, General Mills, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They are funding the research that has to have an outcome. And that's, that's what it is. So the problem with science, as Dr. Yanada says, is that we need more negative studies. They, all the studies are always positive, but, but that can't be possible. That has to be, we should be finding much more negative research. So the whole of nutritional epidemiology should be thrown out today. And that includes virtually all the work of Dr. Willis, Dr. Willett from Harvard and his group. They've misled the world through all their epidemiological studies on the, the nurses study and various other studies, which is long-term studies, which prove nothing, unfortunately. Yeah. Interestingly, I tried to get him to come onto the podcast and he politely declined. But yeah, he is definitely one that that I would have loved to get my hooks in as well. So just shifting gears a little bit, Clarissa and I are clinicians in the field. So we work with food addiction primarily. And what we find is that once people abstain from the substances, right, the sugar, the flour, and they're eating like you eat, right? The way that you talk about in the Real Meal Revolution, the Banting way, real whole foods. They then start eating in volume those things. Have you ever experienced that with patients yourself or in your research? And if so, what mechanism is at work? How can we help these folks? Yeah, you'd say John O. Proudfoot, we, he did a study right at the start and he found that about 10% of people on the Banting diet put on weight. Is that, that what you're implying? Uh, Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And we had no solution because for me, it was the opposite. Of course, as soon as my hunger went away and the cravings went away, I just reduced my calorie consumption. What I now know 
And sorry, when I say no, <laughs> this is not an epidemiological study, but this is the yeah. observation. And again, it was the diet doctor who led me to this. And a guy called Ted Naiman. I don't know if you've, you know, yeah. Ted. And they, I think, are on the right track that the, for some of us, a high protein intake is the only solution. Now, and we've kind of overlooked that. And what I've observed in people reporting back to me is that there is a group of people who put on weight when you put them on this diet, and that's because they overeat on fat. And the fat, instead of suppressing their, their appetite, actually stimulates it. So there could be a fat addiction. You better consider that one. Yeah, but then, but then there's, there's also the issue of just volume addiction. Have you experienced that? Just no, no. eat a lot. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I wasn't aware of that one. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's something that there's no science behind this, but there's yeah. a lot of clinical evidence. Yeah. We have people eating, they'll say they'll eat six steaks. They'll just keep eating because they yeah. want that feeling of full. That's very interesting. No, I was not aware of that. I think it becomes almost, this is why we believe there's a food addiction syndrome, that it yeah. starts with the, uh, the the refined sugars. And then if the condition continues, anything, even behaviors become addictive, like behavior, yeah. like yeah. overeating yeah, or restricting. So to, to continue my line, I think there are some people who need to eat 60% protein that, you know, that's, and only then do they start to lose weight. Ah. And so for whatever reason, that's what I would do for those people who are putting on weight on this diet. I would say, cut the fat and increase the protein. I wasn't aware of the volume issue that you described. But that makes sense because Dr. Neiman talks about there being that protein threshold and we'll only eat to a certain point and then we will shut down right? We will just stop consuming once we hit that protein threshold. So that makes sense. Yeah. It's interesting though. I mean, we have people who can overeat steak and Brussels sprouts, eat six steaks, and maybe it's the fat content in the steak. You know, again, we don't have the yeah. science behind it. Yeah. We just have our anecdotal experience and we're trying to help these folks who yeah. are clearly suffering. Can yeah. I just, I'll tell you right now that that's a new syndrome, that that is clearly behavioral Yeah, because in the early overfeeding studies, which were done in Vermont, and I'm forgetting the guy's name, and it'll come to me in a few minutes. But they took prisoners in the yeah. Vermont prison, and they gave them as much steak as they could eat, and they couldn't overeat on it. So there's something. So what's happened in the interim 40 years or so huh. is that people have changed their behavior and their expectations. But if you're a prisoner, you couldn't overeat on protein. And you would think if anyone was going to overeat, they would, but they couldn't. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, no, that's so good. And I'm gonna I'm going to look more into that because I think you're right on the money. There's something Dr. behavioral Dr. there. Dr. Sims yeah. was the author. He was one of the authors. And I forget the other guy's name, but it was Dr. Sims, and it's the famous overfeeding studies in the in the Vermont prisons. Very good. So we're gonna switch gears and start wrapping it up because I know your time is precious. And so we were wondering, are there again kind of rolling back to this idea of who we can trust and how we can find our way through this misinformation these days. Are there individuals in out there that you follow and trust that our listeners should pay attention to, or that maybe we should be inviting to the podcast to expose our listeners to as it pertains to the food? Yeah, that's interesting. Obviously, Nina Teicheld, and I'm sure you've had her. And of course, she's not a scientist. Well, she is a scientist, but she's not a food scientist. And then Gary Tubbs, you know, and I have Gary's book right here because yeah. I've never far away from it. I mean, this is an astonishing achievement, this book. Yeah. And 
even though it was published in 2007, it's as, you know it's, it's not up to date, but it gives you the the issues are all there, and the history is fantastic. So those are two people. I love Zoe Harcom. She was another of my expert witnesses, and she's just so on the button and yeah. understands the nutrition science so well. And she knows it from the statistical point of view as well, that she has an understanding of statistics that very few people have. David Ludwig from Harvard is world-class, absolutely world-leading scientist and has done some of the best studies. And then, of course, there's Jeff Olek, who's just astonishing from Ohio State, and his team are absolutely amazing. So those are the sort of, those are the people who I have absolute faith and who are the real leaders and who've, who've led the field long before it became popular. And I think that's part of the key as well, that they've, and then there's, of course, Eric Westman, who worked with Jeff Ehrlich and the Steve Finney. But those are the people who are in on the ground floor and who fought all the resistance and have been very successful. Jeff's not as vocal publicly, I think, as David Ludwig is. So that's perhaps why he's not as well appreciated. But Jeff is is astonishing. All the issues, he researched them long before anyone else even had raised them. So those are off the top of my head. Those are some of the people who I think are exceptional in this field. Yeah, no, that's great. We have not had Nina, but we've had Gary and Zoe was on my list to reach out to. And Vera and Clarissa just recently had the pleasure to interview Dr. Westman. So that episode is still coming. So absolutely. I mean, it sounds like we're on the right track. So, you know, I don't want to assume you listen to a whole lot of podcasts or or <laughs> it sounds like you're doing a lot of reading of research, but this is our platform. Like this is our voice. And so we were just wondering, you know, what can we do as the Food Junkies podcast to make a difference in having food addiction addressed? Like how can we be any louder so that people will hear us worldwide, do you think? Yeah, I think that, again, I said the science, but the science is being done there and that you've got realistic doing the work and you've got others doing the work so you know that's probably not your responsibility how you get it into becoming a national issue i'm not sure because everyone is working on it to make it a national issue i think you have to identify it is that that's the elephant in the room is food addiction is causing the obesity and the obesity is then linked to diabetes etc and insulin resistance if I were to start a campaign, that's what I, I want to get rid of visceral obesity because visceral obesity you can only get rid of if you're eating the low low carb diet. And people don't understand; they all accept visceral obesity. Now, I'm fortunate that I was grew up in the 50s and the 60s where everyone was lean. I mean, as at school, we had one guy who was who was overweight, probably not obese, but definitely overweight, and he was the absolute exception. And we thought he had cancer because it was so uncommon. Everyone else was lean, as they were at Woodstock. And if you look at the people in the, the military in Vietnam, they were all lean. All those movies of the 60s, the late 60s, everyone was lean. And that's the norm. But today, the norm is visceral obesity. That now is accepted as normal. And we have to say, well, why has it been accepted as normal? And what are we going to do about it? And what's causing it? And it's food addiction. It's sugar addiction that is causing it. So I don't know how we keep fighting that one. But that needs to be the message, I think. That's a great message to end the podcast on, that food addiction is the white elephant in the room for food for obesity. I think that's great. So uh, just in closing off, uh, what's next for you? Do you have another project that we should be following? Sorry, Vera. They obviously they don't want you to talk to me in South Africa. <laughs> They're cutting well, the I, I was I was really just asking what's next for you um, in terms of your work, in terms of what's happening for you. 
Yeah, you know, I just continue pushing what I've always been doing. And I will be active on Twitter and I will continue to write articles. I'm actually moving back to revise the law of running, which was the book that made me eat so much carbohydrate. And I'm really looking looking forward to completely revising it because it's the final revision. It's the fifth edition and I'll be completely changing it. It'll be a completely new book. So that's going to be exciting for me. But through the Noakes Foundation, we have a nutrition network and we really are doing a lot of training of people around the world. If you ask me, what would I like to do in the next 30 years, if I was going to make 100, and if there was one change I'd like to see, this is it. And it is that there would be, for chronic disease treatment and the diseases of insulin resistance, the people who would do it would be the dietitians and the exercise scientists as a new profession, a new profession combining those two skills. And there may be other skills, like food addiction skills, whatever. But those people become accountable for treating the obesity epidemic and the chronic diseases because medicine can't do it. And what's happening is everyone is being trained through the medical schools and they're not getting the right training. And that can't change. It absolutely will not change because the pharmaceutical model cannot be thrown out from the medical schools. They're absolutely financially dependent. So the future is a different way of educating nutritionists and scientists in movement, human movement, and combining it as a new degree, and that then those people become the people who look after the management of chronic disease. And where would it be done? It would have to be done in a university, internet-based university, or a new university which is totally independent of the pharmaceutical industry. So then we would solve our problems. That would immediately solve our problems because we would take the food addiction and all the other problems away from the medical model and we'd get it, this works. You know, that I'm obviously, I'm about to go and give a lecture on coaching and so on. And what I love about coaches is that they're accountable. If the team loses, they get the sack. Their coach of Barcelona football club got sacked today because his team had lost 14 games in a row or something. And the Manchester United, that's another famous team. The coach is about to get sacked because they've lost a couple of games in a row. But doctors never get sacked. <laughs> Dietitians never get sacked. And that we have to sack them. The public has to sack them. But there's nothing to replace them with at the moment, except, of course, people trained by yourselves. But they're too far and few and far between, and they're difficult to get into contact with. So if you were, I will be working on that behind the scenes and seeing if we can achieve something. I don't... To start a new profession, why not? I was reading, my son gave me a book about where do universities come from? They came from the monasteries. There once upon a time, there wasn't, there weren't universities, there were just monasteries. And then someone got a good idea that, well, let's train people at so-called universities. But we don't have to stick with that model. We can change it and develop our own new model. So I'll be working on those two things. And um, hopefully people will see the light and the public will realize and start demanding you know, it's really interesting, and I don't want to get into the vaccination and the COVID, but, but I think the public is going to wake up sooner or later, and they're going to ask, is all the information we've been given 100% correct or not? Or has it been harmful? And was what was done appropriate and necessary, and didn't it cause more problems than it might have solved? And I think that the public may wake up, and I think the profession, the medical profession, risks a lot in the way it's managed this this crisis. And there may be a time when the public says we've had enough. We don't trust you guys anymore. 
And that will be the moment when we can really make progress. Yeah, the straw that breaks the camel's back, so to speak. So we've heard you mention a couple of times you're pretty active on Twitter. I'm pretty sure I see you there most days. Other than Twitter and the Tim Noakes Foundation, is there anywhere else that our listeners could go to find more information about you and what you're doing? No, I've, that's the only ones that I'm, I'm I'm not on Facebook or Instagram or something. Yeah, Twitter's enough for me. <laughs> and, Fair. Yeah, yeah, one platform is more than enough. Okay, so we have a signature question, if you'd be so kind to answer for us. If you could tell a younger version of yourself something about sugar, carbs, processed foods, what would it be? <laughs> I'd say, listen to your mother. No, no, I'm going to tell you a lovely story. This is the best story you're going to hear all day and in, on future podcasts. So my sister went to Britain in 1965. And when she came back, she was leaner by a few kilograms. And I never asked her and she remained lean and she's now 76. And she's remained amazingly healthy and incredibly lean for her whole life. Her weight has not not budged since she was 18. And uh, I only after I'd been through all my troubles did she tell me Tim, you know what happened when I went to London in 1965? I picked up a book called The Drinking Man's Diet, and it was the first low-carb diet. And she said, I started following that diet from 1965 to today. And she said, it solved all my weight issues and all my health issues. So I said, well, why didn't you tell me? So she said, because you were the expert. (laughs) And I wasn't going to tell you you were wrong, completely, utterly wrong. So that was the problem. And the other thing was that my mother was involved in the, her parents were involved in the meat industry in the United Kingdom. And so she was a great meat promoter and she raised me on offal. But what happened was I went to medical school and I met all these professors and they said, no, you can't eat meat and offal. You've got to eat cereals and grains. And so that was it. So the advice I would give myself was I should have listened to my mother and to my sister. Or I should at least have asked my sister what her advice was for my nutrition. Because I was running a lot in the 70s and my running performance very quickly went off. It was never quite as good as it was when I first started. And when I first started, I wasn't into the high carb story, but I didn't realize it at the time. And one of the reasons I loved running was we used to train these huge long distances and we'd run 40 miles on a Sunday morning. And I would get so high. And the reason I'd get high is because I'd be ketotic and my glucose would probably come down and I'd be in perfect metabolic state. But I had to run that far to get rid of all the carbs and start burning the fat that made me feel healthy and good. And so when I ran these ultra marathons, I touched heaven. But now I know that's actually, I should have been feeling like that all the time if I hadn't been eating carbs. Dr. Niltz, thank you so much for this uh, podcast. That's a great way to end this uh, this message that you can feel like heaven if you eat the way we do without the marathon. So that was Dr. Tim Noakes. Thank you so much for your share. And we're good. Thanks, Vera. Thank Thanks, Molly. Lovely to be with you both. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. 
Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.